All right, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the Build Show podcast. That's right, my weekly time to get together with you guys and go deep. We got a great topic today. We're talking remodeling, uh, the process of remodeling. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some things that you want to avoid when you're remodeling, setting good expectations with your clients, whether you should uh, allow people to or whether you should do projects where people are going to live in the house or move out of the house. We got a lot of good stuff, and I'm here with Tim Hill, uh, who is one of the builders that I've been working with for, gosh, at least 15 years now. And Tim's got 40 years of experience on this front. So between the two of us, uh, we got around 70 years of construction and remodeling experience. So we're gonna be we're gonna be really getting into this. This is gonna be a lot of fun. All right, guys, you ready? Let's get going. Before we jump into today's topic, I want to say a big thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Aquar. Now, if you're not familiar with these guys, this is a really interesting uh, hose bib product that's frost-free, meaning it shuts off into the house. Uh, and what's cool about this product in particular and what drew me to it originally uh, is really nice aesthetics. No standard hose bib on the outside of the house, just a door that flaps up and then a hose bib that you insert. And when you turn it, it's shutting off, or in, I should say turning on the water several inches inside the wall cavity so that you're gonna not have problems with freezing. But here's something I learned about these in doing a uh, kind of backyard test a few years ago. I, I bought a chest freezer and uh, packed it with dry ice so that the inside of the chest freezer was stupid cold, like, you know, minus 30 or something on the inside of the chest freezer. And I used several different frost-free hose bibs. You know, the typical ones are made of brass, but all the Aqua products are made of stainless steel. And, you know, we wouldn't use stainless steel in wiring our houses because it's not a very good conductor. And that actually works big time in your favor when you're thinking about a hose bib because brass hose bibs will conduct that cold inside the house. And as a matter of fact, we got a lot of frost on the warm side of the wall when we did this test because over time, the brass was bringing that cold to the outside and then it was hitting uh, you know, air that had moisture in it and becoming a condensing surface. So in the wall cavity, in theory, you really could actually have frost happening inside your walls because of a brass hose bib. On the other hand, the stainless steel, which is not conductive, had almost no frost happening and we had these big mushrooms of frost happening on the brass version so check that video out that's probably in the archives somewhere you could find but long story short aqua hose is very very cool use them at my house a lot of different flavors and styles and lastly i'd also mention they offer various amounts of shut off into the wall so if you're in texas like i am you may only need one that shuts maybe two or four inches back off into the wall but if you're in Minnesota or Maine, you may want the one that shuts off 12 inches into the wall. So they've got lots of different options out there. All right, guys, let's get going on today's topic. So first off, you all have met Tim Hill before. Tim, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. For sure. Yeah. Uh, so Tim, you've been remodeling for almost 40 years. You probably started like I did in kind of almost all new construction. Right. How, how many years have you been doing remodels there? Or when was your first kind of company tim hill builder inc specific remodel that you that, did you that's, remember that's a great question in in the early 80s uh i want to say that builders really didn't do both yeah. they really stratified themselves into new home builders 
and remodelers. And they were mm -hmm. two different types of companies. Uh, probably in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, when um, the, the market sort of changed because of an economic cycle that we went through, yep. some of those builders picked up remodeling jobs just to survive yeah. and learned that, hey, this is lucrative. Mm -hmm. It fills in my gaps. Yeah. And it actually helps me learn what I did wrong when I built the new home. Boy, that's for sure. Yeah. That's big time. So the, the Reisinger home story is we started this company in 05 and, you know, the big recession happened shortly after that. And prior to the big recession, we were kind of only doing new builds, but I'd done remodeling for years. So it was no big deal for us to, to pick up remodel projects. Uh, and so we did nothing but remodels for several years. And that's about the time that you started working with me uh, together. It was maybe 2011 or 12. And today, I would say our mix is probably 70, 30, when you say kind of new yeah, construction remodel. That's probably right. Something like that. Yeah. But I think that having that remodel background and we talk about it all the time. It's not like we say we're a new builder who occasionally does a remodel. We typically in our sales uh, pitch to clients say we do both whole house remodels and new construction. I would agree with you. I think that makes us a better new home builder because we see the problems that all these different decades of houses have happened. Uh, and we've corrected those problems when we build new. Right. And I think now the, uh, the builders that do remodeling are, are once again stratified into two different types of remodelers. We are more, as you say, the, the whole house remodeler mm -hmm. because we have a philosophy that it's hard for us to affect the performance of a house unless we can bring the whole house up to current building science standards. Yeah. However, not everyone wants to do that. And so there are builders that specifically work on kitchens or master bathrooms or uh, some exterior addition or, or improvement. And, and those... Uh, those remodelers are a little different in, in the way they approach the projects. Yeah. Um, our model works well for us, but it does uh, create situations where we must uh, remove most of the cladding mm -hmm. on the inside and the outside of a house yep. uh, to expose the way it was done and the, and the, and the, and the products that were used there. Uh, so invariably, a lot, you know, we do, a lot of rewiring, a lot of replumbing, mm -hmm. um, all new air conditioning uh, systems and equipment. Uh, of course, all new finishes, uh, and and we really love to do uh, new wall profiles. Yeah, certainly doing great WRB products, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's a zip wall or some kind of uh, peeling stick or fluid yeah. applied, aluminum flash, right. or Something else. That's right. Mm -hmm. And so. Um, when, when the house is finished, it's effectively a new house That's on right. an old footprint. Yeah. Um, uh, but Typically it, old foundation, maybe maybe some old framing that right. we've kind of uh, beefed up or brought to new standards. Right. But the rest of the systems are all new. That's right. Now, that that's what we do today in 2022 and coming into 23. We haven't always done that. And I would say some of those projects have been difficult projects where we intended to leave a good portion of whatever. And as we got into the project, uh, oftentimes clients said, well, now that I'm already doing this, this, and this, I should go ahead and remodel the upstairs too, uh, or do this and that. And so as I look back on our remodel projects over the years, some of the harder projects 
especially harder in, in terms of having happy clients through the process and setting good expectations were ones that started with a lower scope and ended with a scope that was two or three X uh, at the end. Any advice for people listening on that front, especially as we potentially go into a time where new homes aren't quite as busy as they have been in the past? Well, certainly, and I'll harp on this forever, um, we have to set client expectations Mm -hmm. and we have to let them know that any remodeling job has almost an infinite number of unknowns. When we get into it and we start peeling it apart, we may discover things that we don't know today Mm -hmm. that may cause the scope to grow. Yep. And it will be up to them to understand that in search for a stopping point, we may have to go all the way back to some distant corner before we can actually integrate the new systems to the old systems. Yeah, that's right. And it gets expensive and it's time consuming. Uh, But I think if you, if you, if you take the clients on that journey and explain to them what the potential of those things are, then they're much better prepared for it when it happens. Certainly, one, one of the things that we've talked about here recently is um, letting clients know that it's not a good idea for them to live in the house oh, yeah, when you're doing topic. any kind of substantial remodel. Yeah. Um, it, it's just too much uh, noise, too much uh, dust, too much collateral damage. And uh, even if they're aware of it, when they're living in it and they see it, it's aggravating and mm-hmm. it's hard to overcome. It is. Uh, so and it's just hard to be perfect when it comes to dust containment, dust control. You can't. Uh, worker timing, uh, setting expectations correctly for what's going to happen tomorrow uh, and schedules. So we've moved to, and it's been quite a few years now, to saying, look, we're not going to do the project if you're going to try and live in the project at right. the same time. How many years ago did we make that decision? I'm trying to think of the last one we did a, uh, a live-in. It's been a while. It has. Um, even even one that we did uh, two or three years ago where we allowed the client to leave some possessions in mm-hmm. a remote bedroom. Yep. Even even that section of the house was, was walled and tented off, mm-hmm. and the door to that bedroom or those rooms were tented off. At the end of the job, when it was all peeled back, it was dust all over everything. Yeah, and because the air conditioning systems were uh, disturbed, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure those those possessions were exposed to a climate control condition for yeah. the whole duration. So, yeah. just not a good idea. There are a lot of companies that specialize in moving out and storing in conditioned environments possessions or contents of a home. Uh, so the clients don't have to worry about it. They don't have to catalog it. It's mm-hmm. all done for them. Yeah, we're um, using White Glove here in Austin. Right? And man, right. they've been wonderful. They have. Where they pull everything out, take it to their shop, bring it all back at the end, and it's just no hassle for the client. Now, you pay for that service. It's not uh, uh, it's not two men in a truck style service. Right. Uh, but at the same time, boy, you get a great result. You do. At the end. That's right. Um, what about the phrase that we've kicked back here a long time uh remodeling is like building a house but there's a house in the way could you could you unpack that for us a little bit for the people listening well that's true and not only do you have to build a new improvement whether it's an addition or remodeling an existing footprint um, but you got to remove those components that are in the way from the original home Mm -hmm. so and and then 
not only do you have to remove certain parts of it, then you have to integrate the old to the new. Yeah. And that's that, I think that's the biggest challenge is um, with the new products that we use and new methodologies that we use to achieve good building performance. Um, how do you overlap? How do you how do you connect um, old WRBs to new WRBs? It's hard. How do you connect old stucco to new stucco? Mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and and how do you effectively uh, uh, flash windows and door openings and all that? So, uh, all the more reason to um, be aggressive yeah. in the way you remove old before you start to integrate new. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, when I was in LA this week, uh, we did a presentation at a Builders First Source store talking about windows, doors, and decks. And one of the remodelers that uh, was there, a guy that kind of focuses mainly on remodeling, because I think LA is a big remodel market. This guy was named Mark Vesta with Jersey Boy Construction. Uh, he was telling me that in today's day and age when windows and doors might take four months or they might take nine months to get to the job, especially if he doesn't quite know what the selection's gonna be, he is not even before the ink's dry on the contract, taking clients over to the window and door showroom at BFS and saying, okay guys, with your budget that you gave me on this, you know, let's let's use an example of one he was talking about, a $400,000 remodel, I plugged in vinyl sliders for your job. That's really, this fits in the budget that you told me you have, but I wanted to have you touch and feel them at the showroom. And he told me a story of a client just recently that was like, okay, yeah. And then and then they showed him the other slider options, you know, the, the aluminum, uh, they had a couple of brands I'd never heard of that were California brands. And they, they had some La Cantina there that I'd never used before, but I was real impressed. Uh, and so the client slides them and I, he's like, yeah, and then, you know, the, the wife nudges the husband and was like, those are, I want to do this instead. So they got a much nicer product. They also got a bigger lead time. And so he said, well, this is why I do it, Matt. You know, I need to know ASAP, like as soon as you ink that contract, the next day I'm getting over there so that within two weeks or so I can make an order. Talk to me about, that sounds great in theory, but when we're talking about a remodel where you don't have a called out rough opening in the plans for new construction, how do you figure out or what have we done on our jobs to know uh, what size to order? Because, you know, these days nothing's an off-the-shelf order anymore. Everything's customized by every manufacturer down to the eighth of an inch or so. Right. Well, or I guess you have three options. Um, one is to do some selective demo mm -hmm. uh, around windows inside and outside to see exactly what the rope up, rough openings are because in most cases there's no way to know that. I mean, yep. it, you know the framing's there. You know how windows and door openings are are traditionally framed so you can make some assumptions but uh, to get it exact you've really got to expose it if you don't want to do that and a lot of people don't want to tear up their house or tear into their house three or four months before you actually start sure then you have to make some assumptions based on what you think you know and then subtract a little bit. So you can always oh, you can always frame in an opening just a little bit. Right. Pat you know, half inch, inch here or there, one inch here or there, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, based on what you think is there, how thick the window frames are for the old windows and how thick they are on the new ones and how wide the flanges are, et cetera. So there's that. The other one is um, just take a chance. I mean, just, just assume that um, – 
you you know what you want. Maybe in a lot of cases, the clients want bigger windows or bigger doors anyway. Mm-hmm. And just so just assume you're going to reframe every opening when you get there. How many times over the years have you uh, assumed that this six foot slider, let's say, uh, as a standard size from the production builder world, uh, you were going to replace it with another six foot slider? You get into the demo and you realize, oh, my gosh, there's like a two by four header above this slider that's already has a smile in it because it's taking too much load and so all of a sudden now you're putting a uh you know double two by ten in when when it was way under frame to begin with that kind of happens all the time right it it does um then another story that is kind of interesting is back in the 70s and 80s there was a product called garden door sold kind of like a uh, predecessor to the doors we know now where you had one fixed panel and one operable panel and a double and uh, the first time those rotted out or needed to be replaced people would take the uh, position I want to change that I want to change it to a sliding door or I want to change it to a French door or whatever so we just made the assumption well that's a six foot wide and a six foot eight inch opening well, those doors were made six foot four inches. Oh, my God. It was an oddball. Super weird yeah. size. And, yeah, it's really weird. So you never know what you're going to rent. So you got to reframe and raise that whole header up mm-hmm. above those. But I, I would say if you're if you're budgeting for remodel and replacing windows and doors, you better have a pretty good allowance in there for some reframing. Yeah. It's just going to happen. That's a great point. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but your tip that you that you said as a matter of course, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. But that is really smart to always think, well, you know, if I measure this, I'm better off taking a half inch off of that just to make sure that I'm, I got plenty of room. Because instead of using a, you know, a one by material, three quarter material for the jams, I could bump it up to a five quarter. No one would ever know. But I'm not necessarily having to reframe because my window won't fit this rough opening. It's right. too tight to get That's in right. there, or I don't have any room to shin it all of a sudden. And I'm I'm doing uh, you know things that I shouldn't be because I misordered the window and ordered it too big. That's really good advice. Always go a little bit smaller than you think you need. Right. right. Talk to me about estimating and how we do it compared to other people. I know I know there's certainly some people listening that are fixed price folks. We do things cost plus. I think it'd be really interesting for these guys to hear our process when we have a new remodel client uh, who comes in and says, hey, I'm interested in remodeling. I don't have an architect yet. I'm trying to figure out what this is going to cost roughly. Uh, Walk me through what that process looks like from your perspective or the client's perspective until we actually have a contract and are ready to go. Well, we have a a larger budget conversation that we've had around here for a long time. And I think we've developed a budgeting process that we can do a whole nother podcast just on budgeting. But yeah, for sure. in, in, a, in a higher level overview, uh, let's look at it this way. So when you first meet with a client and you understand the general scope of what they want based on rooms and square footages, yep. then we know that high fixture and finish areas like kitchens and bathrooms are very high cost per square foot. Yeah, that's right. You know, low fixture and finish areas like living rooms or, or bedrooms are, are a less tier in, yeah. in pricing. So we can we can take historical data that we have based on projects that we've done recently and interpolate what the cost per square foot could potentially be and present to the clients a range of potential costs. So yeah. we're saying to do this, this, and this, we think 
the cost of this project is going to be between this dollar amount and this dollar amount. That's really smart. Give or take. Yep. And so that's the high level. As their plan develops, say they have an architect and they actually define more clearly what they want in each of those rooms or in the whole house or whatever it is. Uh, say when they get well into design documents um, before maybe they get to CDs. Mm -hmm. Then we say, okay, let's bring our trades over and let's have them walk look at the plans, we'll have a conversation with them, and then we'll have them give that same thumbnail. Mm -hmm. Instead of doing it based on our experience as a whole house, let's let them do it based on their experience specific to the, the, the trade that they're going to, right. to perform. That's smart. And then, so now we have this verbal sort of collective knowledge that we put together in a rough estimate. Yeah, It's, it's more accurate than the original high level, but it's still not actual bids from trades and suppliers. The analogy that we've used at the office a lot over the years is you're flying over the house from the airplane view and you're saying, all right, from the airplane, it looks like this project's gonna cost between X and Y. It's a million five to two million to do right. what you wanna do. Right. But then once we get uh, more defined plans and we talk about things as, you know, usually from the architect, something like schematic design, which is just a couple sketches, here's a basic floor plan. Then you go to, to DD or design development set, which is now, okay, I get a pretty good understanding of what the window and door package looks like. I can actually maybe get exclusive uh, or BFS to give me a price on this Marvin or this La Cantina or whatever it is. So we can get a number now for windows and doors. We can also usually get some linear footage pricing on cabinets, let's say. Uh, we can get some square footage on tile or hardwoods. Now we can actually give not just a high-level budget, but a helicopter budget where we're floating over the house, the helicopter. Here's where I think this range is going to be. I think actually we're 1.6 to 1.75 now based on a number of assumptions. And I've got a couple of people that have given me some assumptions there as well. Maybe the cabinet guy, maybe yeah. the window and door manufacturer. And then when we get final construction drawings, then we can go out and actually go, okay, now we've got a mechanical design give us a price, Mr. Contractor, right, on exactly. this system that's been designed for this house that shows the tonnage, the uh, amount of dehumidifiers, you know, all this kind of stuff, so that then we can go back to the client and go, okay, here's where the budget stands, but remember, this is a remodel. Right. So we still have that amount of, we're not sure what we're gonna find, depending on how much, how extensive that remodel is. Talk to me for a minute about uh, contingencies and what we've done over the years or what we do today. Well, in, a, in our world, contingencies are more a function of the information that we have. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, contingencies are higher for remodeling than they are for new construction. Yep. But um, if we have a floor plan and a few elevations, um, we're going to have to have a fairly high contingency line item. Yeah because there are a lot of details that aren't there. We don't know what the cabinets are going to look like. We don't know what the electrical is going to look like. We've just got high-level information. Yeah. Right? So, uh, however, if we have a 15, 20-page document that dives into each of those uh, parts of design pretty deeply, a lot of those questions are answered. Um, and quite honestly, what we find is the more information we have, the more the trades know what questions to ask for information they don't know. That's great. That's great and point. so they'll come back. You give them a good detailed set of plans. They'll come back and say, okay, I think I know here, but what about this, 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 and this? And you can go back to the architect, mm -hmm. the, the designer, and the homeowner client 
and the ants get those questions answered, now you've got a fairly accurate bid from that trade. Yeah. So your contingency doesn't necessarily need to be that high. Yeah, that's great. It's kind of a random side note I was thinking about, but how, how do we currently, and and, uh, and actually I don't know the answer to this, how do we bring up conversations with clients about things that aren't in their plans? Like, uh, you know, would you be interested in a generator? Would, would you like to do solar on this house? Uh, would you like this or that that's not on the plans uh, to make sure that we're giving them adequate options um, and not that we're wanting them to spend more money per se, uh, but more like we just want to make sure that they don't have regrets that they hadn't thought about things. Yeah. Talk to me about that a little bit. I think the delicate uh, line that you walk is to uh, present them with options without it sounding like you're trying to upsell them. Right. And so the way we do that is we offer them would you like to accommodate or prepare for these things, which you may want to do now or in the future? That's a great way Whether to say it's it. a solar array mm -hmm. or a backup battery or a generator or rainwater collection, mm -hmm. all, all the above. If you want us to accommodate for those things so they're sort of baked into the, the potential of your house, yep. then we need to design for that. Yeah. And that will open that conversation up so they can explore it and decide, yeah, that's something I want to do now. Or no, we can wait five years to consider that yeah, or don't even pre you know i'm never going to want a generator so don't even bother right. spending the two thousand bucks to put the special panel on or to change the way you're going to wire the house or you know whatever it's probably right. not two thousand bucks but you know what i'm saying sure yeah that makes sense um talk to me about client expectations through the process because i think that's something that you're excellent at tim and i've i've watched you over the years with clients uh where uh, you've got a great rapport with with clients, uh, such that even when you tell them bad news, they know that you're on their side and they're on your team. Talk to me a little bit about uh, how you do that and what that communication flow looks like during the course of a remodel. Once again, that's a whole other podcast. But let's yeah, it really <laughs> is. I'm just looking for the high level version here. Yeah. That is a great podcast. It though. is. We'll come back to that, guys. Yeah. Uh, Client expectations is something that anyone who's successful for any length of time as a professional home builder or remodeler has mastered. Mm -hmm. And the way we do it, again, uh, is to more formalize that approach so that during the design, during the, the budgeting process, the scheduling process, probably almost in all likelihood, before we start, we go through what we call a roadmap. Mm -hmm. And we've created a roadmap for uh, what clients should expect before construction, like during the design phase and the budgeting phase. And then we've created a roadmap for actually the construction phase yep. during, during the project. Yep. And the roadmap's pretty specific to the way we work, what the client should expect in all aspects, whether it's budgeting, scheduling. Fees. Fees. Hourly costs right. for project managers. That's yep. everything. Um, and it goes into some detail about how projects have the potential of needing extra attention at certain uh, phases or at certain points and yep. things that can go wrong and how we manage through those mm -hmm. and how we, as a team, we work around. And the whole idea is to create this environment where the design team and the builder and the homeowner are a collaborative team just throughout the entire process. Yep. 
so that when bad things do happen, and they always do, that it's a it's a collective effort to solve them. Yep. The, the homeowner feels like they're not this remote entity that's subjected to this bad stuff happening to right. them without that, any ability to affect. Right. Anything. They're part of the team that discovered it. They're part mm-hmm. of the team that 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 uh, that comes up with a solution to to work around it and yep. work through it. Yep. And then they feel like even though it, it was painful, I feel good because we worked through it in the most efficient way with all the people that were the, the proper stakeholders solving the problem. And when it's done, they appreciate their home in the process much, much more. Yeah. yeah. We've talked about that uh, roadmap a bunch over the years. We probably started it, I don't know, a dozen years or so ago. And we've updated it and changed it quite a bit. In fact, it, it's a, a bit of a living document for sure, we change it annually because we're thinking about our uh, what fees we charge, and we charge different. Um, uh, we have a different free structure for uh, remodel versus new construction and size of project, uh, and then we also bill hourly for our project manager time. Right, uh, and so th- those numbers change on you know some amount of the annual type basis. But if you don't have one currently, if you're a listener to this and you're a builder, remodeler, contractor. I'd encourage you to sit down with your team and develop that because when we develop that, uh, and even since then, we have a lot of rounds of, of back and forth. Hey, I made some changes to this. What do you guys think? Uh, and the way our team works here is uh, there's really three of us that run the home building company. Uh, Tim's the head of construction, so he's really he's really the head builder. Uh, and then I'm not as involved day to day in the home building company as I once was. Uh, and then we also have a COO, Steve, who's been on the podcast before. So the three of us, normally when we make a change to that topic, to that document, for instance, the three of us are looking at it together and saying, hey, here's what I'm proposing for our rates for 2023 or whatever it happens to be. What do you guys think about this? Uh, or uh, we had this issue on a job in the past. I'm going to add that to our disclosure uh, agreement, which I guess we haven't talked about. I do want to mention that too. In our contract, we use the uh, Texas Association of Builders right. uh, contract. And if you're a uh, if you're a contractor, builder, remodeler listening to this, and you're in Texas, I highly recommend the TAB Texas Association of Builder contracts in using them. They're fantastic. And then beyond that, we have a small disclosure, which now is what five pages or so. Well, actually, I think has it gotten um, bigger. It, it has, and, and we have now, it's gotten large enough that we've referenced it as an addendum to the disclosures and to the contract. There you go. So it, instead of being its own standalone document, now it's just part of our contractual agreements. And what's on there is anything that's caused the dust up with a client in the past that we're like, oh my gosh, you know, we didn't do a great job in the past of talking about this documenting that we talked about it. Now we've got it on our disclosure that they have to sign at the contract. Uh, it's even things like, look, you know, if you select natural marble countertops, they can chip easily. Wine will stain them. You know, we talk about those in meetings all the time. But of course, sometimes you get a client who's like, you never told me this wine was going to stain my marble, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you don't remember that. But I don't want to say that. You look like a jerk. So now we've actually have it in our contract so that if we had to, which we haven't had to, but if we had to, we could come back to that. And that's at least a dozen different types of those disclosures. But if I'd highly recommend you have those two documents for your business. First of all, see if you can find a promulgated contract. 
what's the what's the uh, definition of promulgated? Meaning it's from an association. Well, it, uh, yeah, it means uh, it's a collectively uh, put together. Collectively yeah. put together contract. And Tim, yeah. uh, in the eighties and nineties, was uh, president of the H- of the Humboldt Association and worked on the committee that formed the original TAB contracts, which of course have changed and been modified over the years. But in general, Texas builders and Texas attorneys know that contract well enough that when we say we're using the TAB contract and the client's like, oh, let me ask my attorney about it. The attorney's like, oh yeah, I know the contract. Uh, the only thing I want you to ask them about is this section C or whatever. Yeah. Other than that, I'm fine with it. That. It goes out of its way to be fair to all parties. It I does. Think it's that's, a good contract. That's important for any contract to not be one-sided. Yes. Uh, because it, it, if it's not, it you immediately lose faith uh, or trust with your potential client because right. they, they think that you're trying to take advantage of a situation. And that's not good. That's right. And yeah. and those TAB contracts have a remodel contract and a new construction contract. So you have a contract that's specifically two remodels, which is our topic today. Uh, and I suspect that other states uh, have a promulgated contract as well. And this is not a, this is not a plug for the Homebuilder Association, but Tim and I have been members separately and now together for many, many decades. Uh, and we're big fans of the Homebuilders Association. It's a national uh, organization that has a state organization and then usually has a local organization. So when we're members of the HBA, we're members of the Austin HBA, the Texas Association of Builders, which is an HBA, and then the National Association of Homebuilders combined. So it's it's a good group, and I'd recommend that you check and see if there's a state uh, HBA contract because that is a great contract. And uh, not to bash the uh, the other contracts out there, um, but I don't like, and we won't sign some of the other contracts that are also national contracts. I guess yeah. there's no reason why I can't say it. We don't like the AIA contract. Well, it's not really specifically written for the relationship between a general contractor builder That's right. and a client. Yep. It wasn't its original purpose, and don't ever try to make it so. Yeah. It just won't, won't fit. It's not a great contract. Yeah. Um, we're, we're running on two hours and or two hours. We're running at uh, 35 minutes, Tim. And I like to keep the podcast short enough sure. so people can listen to it uh, on their way to a job site or the office. What have we missed, though, on this topic? Was there anything here that uh, that we didn't delve into on the remodel side? No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of things that we can v- revisit on other podcasts uh, or videos. Yep. And, um, uh, I, you know, I can think of probably eight or ten different subjects that would kind of speak to how we should run our businesses professionally. Um, but uh, for the time being, I think we've covered what we need to. Yeah. The yeah. One last thought that I had, uh, you know, I made a big plug for the HBA. We're not members of NARI, which is the National Association of the Remodeling Industry, but they've had me speak a couple times at the Austin chapter. And I got to tell you, I'm really impressed by them. And they're, they're a group that's really focused on just remodelers. That's right. Whereas I think the HBA is kind of a little different in that we kind of generally call ourselves general contractors more than new home builders, or we just call ourselves builders, which I think is a great term because a builder can remodel or can build new. Right. Nary is a very remodel-focused group. So if you're listening to this and you really are a focused company that does remodel, I'd look for a, a local Nary chapter. Because uh, a lot of times when people come to me on remodel projects and it's not a good fit for us, I'll say, hey, you should check out the uh, Nary Austin chapter because I've met a lot of the folks there and there's some really good uh, people over there. They are. And, and most 
local chapters of the National Association of Home Builders have a custom builder and remodelers oh, council. There so there go. is some overlap. Many of those members of the custom builder and remodeler council are also builders of the Narig, uh, uh group. Yeah, well. that's a great, I forgot about the CBRC. Yep. Yeah, that's a great, and that's a really active and terrific group here. Are you on the- uh, Steering uh, committee. Steering mm -hmm. committee again this year, that's awesome. Uh, in fact, we just had a fantastic job site visit uh, at the custom builder remodeler council at my buddy Luke Mesger's yeah. project last yeah. week. Ray Ton just was there. It was like old times again. Yeah, I was supposed to be there, but I had a client meeting. Yeah, it was it was cool. But I heard you came and filled in for me. I did. It was awesome. And you Thank know, you I, for doing that. I even saw some things at uh, at Luke's job that I was like, man, this tree protection is really neat. He he had done a plywood uh, and two by four base in this area that was a staging area that wasn't necessarily a critical root zone per se, but there were just a lot of trees on the site in general. I thought it was pretty neat. They put the usual, you know, eight inches of mulch down, and then they took two, some two by fours as if it was a flat roof deck and dropped some three quarter plywood and screwed it all together. And it made a spot that they could run a, you know, lumber package down and not necessarily crush some roots. I hadn't seen someone do that. I thought that made a lot of sense. And it was one of those like, oh, man, I love going to other builders' job sites. Even though I've done this for 30 years, I feel like there's always something to learn. And that's definitely true with remodels too, isn't it? It is. And, and I think Luke is a really uh, thoughtful builder that thinks through what he can do on his projects that are unique and that, that make the project look good to the neighborhood, make mm -hmm. it look good to the uh, local building inspectors when they show up. So yeah, I appreciate his uh, innovative uh, nature there. Yeah, that's one. That's one of the fun things about the podcast and the videos over the years is that we've made friends with a lot of really good builder builders. Uh, as kind of a random side note, I was in LA this week, and uh, while I was there, this podcaster that I know, who's a comedian, uh, Ari Manis, uh, reached out to me. And was like, "Hey, you're going to be in LA. Will you be in my podcast?" And so I was on the Unlicensed Therapy podcast, which is his podcast, which has a half a million subscribers to his podcast. Pretty, pretty beefy podcast. He's a comedian, right? But he watches the build show and he's like, man, I know I'm going to build a house someday. I love talking construction, but I'm, I currently do not own a house. I rent in L.A. I rent in Hollywood. Uh, but he had some great questions for me, including I thought this was good. Um, are there any builders in your town that, that you would recommend if they don't go with you. And he expected me to say, no, everyone's terrible. Like you could only build with me. And, and I said to him, and I, and I truly believe this, there's 10 builders easy that I think are as good or better than us, uh, just in my town. And, you know, when I was in LA, when I'm in Bozeman, when I'm in all these other towns, I'm really encouraged by the builders and remodelers that I meet. There's so many young builders that are watching uh, you and I, Tim, that are learning from our wisdom, that are not just learning it, but they're doing it. Right. Uh, I and they this, care. And they care. I met this builder, um, Redwood Construction, this week in L.A., who said, man, I watch all your stuff. I love your podcast and your videos. And then he starts showing me pictures of my job. And I'm like, man, you're the only guy in this area doing some of these high performance details and i was super proud of him and not, he wasn't just watching he was doing and and our podcast and our videos made a difference on his projects it made me really proud to, to do what we do yeah 
It's great. So, all right, guys, we should probably wrap it up 40 minutes in. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we need to write down a couple of those topics to come back to because I think we could we could expand for 40 minutes on uh, budgeting for sure easily and customer expectations yeah. and customer management. Yeah. But, uh, guys, if you're not currently a subscriber to the podcast, hit that subscribe button below. We do publish this every single Friday. We're on season two. We're almost at the end of season two, actually. And if you're not watching this uh, over on buildshownetwork.com, you can actually watch the podcast as well. we got three cameras in front of Tim and I. Uh, you can see our smiling faces. Uh, you can play us in the background while you're eating your lunch, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but I really appreciate you being on, Tim. And I, pre I appreciate you guys for hitting that subscribe button, coming back week after week for the podcast. We're really trying to give you deep content that's helpful for you and your building, remodeling, general contracting, or architecture businesses. Uh, and it's really fun to be on the road sometimes and meet some of you guys. So with that being said, follow us on Instagram or TikTok. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the Build Show podcast.